For the week of Wednesday, June 20th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we have a big one. First, we discuss Trump's just-signed executive order on the separation of immigrant families with Seattle immigration attorney Minda Thorward. We talk about what the order does and doesn't cover and about what may come next in the fight. Then we talk with the stranger's Rich Smith to try to make sense of the many stories and lies the Trump administration has told about its policy of separating immigrant families. We also hear from the leader of Indivisible Washington's 8th District's research team, Stephen Wilhelm, about what we can be doing in response to all of this. Then, in the second half of the show, we talk about last weekend's state Democratic convention. First, with 5th LD Democratic State Committee member Josh Truppen, who gives us a great rundown both on what happens at a state convention generally and specifically about what happened at this year's convention. And finally, we speak with Jen Carter. She is an indivisible member who attended the convention this year for the first time as a delegate from the 5th Legislative District. That's all ahead, so stay with us. So we will begin this week with Minda Thorward. She is an immigration attorney in Seattle specializing in deportation defense, and she is joining us right now to talk about Trump's just-signed executive order that effectively ends family separation. Minda Thorward, thank you so much for being available. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. So just tell us um, briefly, what does this executive order do and what does it not do? Okay. So, I, I mean, the executive order basically ends the policy of separating children from their parents, supposedly. This is what what it says. Um, It it shifts blame from Trump, um, who is responsible for this policy, or attempts to at least, to the courts and Congress. And he references the Flores settlement, which was, it was a 1997 settlement that was a result of decades of litigation responding to a previous policy of detaining children. Um, and so what it, what it required is that juveniles must be released from custody without delay unless there was a you know, significant public safety or flight risk concern. Um, and so Trump is basically trying to say that his policy of detaining children was because of this settlement. Um, so that's, and it's not necessarily true. And so one of the other things that I understand this executive order allows for, well, first of all, it stops the separation of families, but what it does effectively is incarcerate these asylum seekers with their children and also makes right. it so that they can be held for an indefinite length, right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. So that's exactly what it's what it's doing. Um, I hadn't hadn't quite gotten there, but that's true. So, I mean, it's, it's basically a political ploy and a farce. I mean, it seems to some of us advocates that that was kind of the intention all along was to make this really, really horrible policy and then walk it back and say, oh, never mind, we're not going to separate, you know, um, parents and children, we're just going to jail all of them. Um, and these are people that are seeking asylum legally in our country. So they are coming to our borders, they are fleeing horrendous violence in their home countries and seeking refuge lawfully in the U.S. These are not criminals. There's no reason to detain them indefinitely, to jail them indefinitely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the question that is on a lot of people's minds right now is what happens to the children who have already been separated? Does this executive order address that at all? Um, I, it, it doesn't appear to, to me. I mean, I don't, I haven't seen any plan 
um, to reunite these children with their parents. I haven't seen any plan for providing adequate care for them. Um, you know, they, they don't have adequate medical care. They need mental health care. There is no plan, as far as I can tell, to reunite them with their, with their parents. Some of their parents may have already been deported, and they may, we may be trying to track down um, parents that are in, um, you know, Central America somewhere with limited infrastructure. I mean, I just, it just doesn't seem like it's even going to be feasible to reunite all these children with their parents. Is there anything else that we know really at this point about what this executive order is going to mean for uh, for families at the border uh, right now? I mean, the hope is that children will no longer be separated from their parents going forward. Yeah. That's the hope. Um, but I mean, it seems that what the president is calling for is for all asylum seekers to be jailed as families. Um, it seems sort of um, like an impossible task because there aren't really facilities, you know, enough facilities set up to do this. I mean, the policy had been before was that men were detained separately and women and children were detained together um, as a family unit. And then if they passed a credible fear interview, meaning they had a viable asylum claim, they were released as a unit. So they were only detained briefly, you know, in a brief period of time for the most part, and then allowed to pursue their claims outside of detention. So, you know, it, it would involve a massive expansion of our uh, immigration detention facilities in order to house all of these people indefinitely until their asylum claims were adjudicated. Um, and many times what ends up happening with um, detained asylum seekers is that the conditions and the tensions are so horrible that they gave up on their claims. So yeah, rather we've than, heard, we, we hear about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than continue with the abuse in the, in, in the detention center, they would go back to their home country. And these are places where people are fleeing um, violence from gangs that are acting as de facto governments. They're fleeing um, domestic violence in countries that have no ability to protect them and sort of view um, even the worst cases of domestic violence as a personal matter. Um, and as far as we know, this executive order does nothing to undo the Attorney General Sessions edict that uh, asylum seekers may no longer claim asylum being the victim of domestic abuse or gang violence, correct? Okay. So you're speaking about matter of AB, which is a um, Board of Immigration Appeals decision that was just issued um, last week, I think it, I think it was. And um, he, he does try to dismantle um, the law on those issues, but not entirely successfully. So there are still arguments that um, lawyers are making, um, you know, not based on the case that was rescinded um, or vacated, but, um, you know, there's a huge body of law that predates all of this. And people were already making those claims successfully. And so um, it's still possible to get asylum based on domestic violence or gang um, gang violence. It just got a lot harder. Well, so. this is something that you obviously deal with as somebody who specializes in deportation defense. And, you know, just in closing, I'll just ask you, Trump is clearly betting that this is going to lessen the uh, the outrage over families being separated from their children. And your mom, you, as I said, work with people who face deportation. What's your feeling on that? I, I mean, I... <laughs> I, I just think it's a political ploy. I mean, it, it may lessen some of the outrage, but I think it's just lip service. I think it's, it's a, I think it's the EO is garbage. I mean, I'm glad that, you know, hopefully children will be taken from their parents, but I just, it just seemed like a very flimsy response to the crisis that was created. And on a personal note, um, you know, I'm the, I'm the mother of a five-year-old daughter. I was also, I had experienced a traumatic loss of my mom as a six-year-old. 
And the, the, the damage that has been done to these children is permanent. It is, it is not something that we can undo. Um, the sense of self at that age, it's, it's very much intertwined with your relationship with your parent. And when you lose your parent in a traumatic way for any length of time, either permanently or indefinitely, or um, in this case, it's probably at least for months, um, that damage cannot be undone. It is, it is a permanent trauma. And these kids will suffer throughout their lifetimes, um, you know, with what, was, with what has been done to them. Yeah. Well, in many, many ways, this is an ongoing situation. But uh, Minda Thorward, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us on such short notice this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So at the beginning of this week, which honestly now seems like years ago, I, I wanted to do something of an explainer about the many conflicting stories and lies that the Trump administration has been telling about their policy of separating asylum seekers from their children at the border. And then lo and behold, the stranger's Rich Smith published a very concise piece about that on Monday. So I have invited him back on the show to discuss. Hey, Rich. Here's Devin. So, you know, as we just spoke about in the previous segment, uh, Trump has signed an executive order today that will end the separation of children from their parents. But there are a lot of unanswered questions around it, and we are not out of the woods by any means. Uh, so I, I do think it's a good idea for us to go ahead and try to track the many conflicting stories that we have heard about this policy coming out of the White House. So the first story that we'd been hearing about the policy was from people like Stephen Miller and John Kelly, that separating families was, in fact, a policy of the administration and was intended as a deterrent for illegal immigration. And the second version was that the policy didn't actually exist, which you heard from DHS head Kirsten Nielsen. And then from Trump, we heard that the policy does exist, but that it was the Democrats' fault. Uh, Stephen Miller's position doesn't need an explanation because we know what he is. But let's start with the well, the, the rotting head of the fish. Um, what has Trump been basing this on, that the Democrats are to blame? Yeah, I mean, the law he's talking about is one that says you can't send children to federal prison. But when he tweets in all caps, change the law, he's not talking about that law. He's talking about um, our general immigration uh, laws. And so it's a little bit confusing. But basically, the thing that Jeff Sessions did, as I mentioned, was criminalize border crossings. And you used to be able to get scooped up, um, uh, screened, and then released until you're hearing. Um, now, and the people would come up. across ultimately claiming asylum from uh, wh- whatever you know situation that they were fleeing at home, and that claim had to be adjudicated in a court, right? That's right. And then, so instead of releasing those people, giving them a credible fear hearing if they're seeking asylum, that you know, m- make sure that they're not a member of MS-13. Uh, and make sure that they're not that they're legitimately fleeing some form of um, of violence. Uh, they're released. So, just to put a very very fine point on it, is there a law that requires separating children from their parents at the border? No, that's <laughs> no. There's a law that requires you to um, that says that children can't go to federal prison. And so, since they are you know criminalizing border crossing. That means that they're sending parents to the federal prison. Since you can't send a kid there, you got to send them somewhere else to a shelter. And that effectively means that you're separating 
families. Well, and of the, right there, I think you've pointed out where the court challenge is going to come from here in that you can't send children to a federal prison. So, uh, yeah, so this this whole situation is is far from over, I think. Um, and I should just point out uh, before we move away from Trump here and talk about Kirsten Nielsen's version um, that the Trump administration's own policy for the first 15 months uh, was congruent with Obama's and Bush's and their prede- and all the predecessors and that the Trump administration themselves actually released some 100,000 immigrants into the country. So it turns out that it was a Trump policy, too. Okay. Let's talk about Kirsten Nielsen's story. So she is the head of the DHS. She said in a press conference and on Twitter that the administration doesn't actually have a policy that separates families. So what was she basing that on? Um, yeah, she said that applying for asylum isn't a crime, right? And that people can just come through the port of entries, the normal port of entries, and apply for asylum, and then you know, then they won't be put in federal prison and be separated from their children. Um, that, that's my understanding of, of her claim yesterday. But the irony is that this administration has made it all but impossible to apply for asylum, right? Exactly. According to asylum lawyers, two things have happened. Uh, Sessions now says that asylum seekers can't cite domestic violence and gang violence to make their claim for asylum. Almost everyone in Honduras and Guatemala is fleeing gang violence or domestic violence. And so it's almost impossible for the majority of people trying to come here and make a better life for themselves to make that claim. Also, there have been several reports that Border Patrol is telling asylum seekers entering the ports of entry that Nielsen cites, the official channels, that those Border Patrol uh, officers are saying, you know, the country is full up. Uh, You have to wait outside until you're invited into the port of entry. Some of these families are uh, made to wait outside for days. Um, It's punitive. Um, And they're even separating parents from children when they legally apply for asylum at these ports of entries. The ACLU has filed a case against the government where they did just that. Yeah. Well, well, so, you know, you say in your piece that all of this lays bare ultimately the Trump administration's endgame with this. And that may be shifting right now. But I'd love for you to talk about the conclusion that you came to in your piece. Yes, ultimately, Trump doesn't have to sign an executive order to stop this. He could just tell Sessions to stop criminalizing the border crossings. Sessions has prosecutorial authority. He doesn't have to do this and end this madness. But, you know, what this all reveals is that he he's holding these children hostages so that he can, as a way to force Democrats in Congress to sign on to uh, his horribly draconian immigration bill. So, you know, I was going to ask your take on, you know, Feinstein's bill in Congress. That is the Keep Families Together Act. And you had said in the piece that you published on Monday, or actually you said in a piece that you'd published last week, that you didn't think that bill had much of a shot. Uh, And I was going to ask you if if your opinion had changed as of this morning, but then, of course, uh, you know, Trump made his announcement. But I'm kind of curious to get your take on Congress's role in all of this and in terms of what has been happening at the border, particularly with congressional Republicans. What are your thoughts there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, congressional Republicans came out um, yesterday. Finally, they released all of their statements after this policy had gone on for, for two months and been reported heavily for at least two weeks and said that we must end this, you know, or, you know, that it's we shouldn't be separating families at the border. 
but it's just one part of our broken immigration system and we need to fix this broken immigration system in Congress. They didn't need to go. Any words past the butt should have been irrelevant. If they wanted to stop this, if they really believed we shouldn't be doing it, they could have signed on to Feinstein's bill, you know, or you know, they or they could have been, you know, pressured um, uh, the administration in, in other ways, and or passed something. They really had an opportunity to act here and pass bipartisan legislation on immigration if they wanted to, mm. but they they did. Right. Well, you know, and in fact, in the next segment, uh, we're going to be talking about the Goodlot proposal and the Ryan proposal. And uh, Ryan's proposal is the only one that really addressed the situation at the border and even in that way, uh, in, in a very unsatisfactory way. So, yeah, so I think uh, your, your point is well taken. You know, before I let you go, uh, you've been covering the race, the congressional race in the 8th District here in the state, and you recently wrote about an all-men's retreat that uh, Republican candidate Dino Rossi was going to be attending in Pierce County on June 30th, which indivisible groups were planning on protesting. Um, the organizers found out about that, and they have since removed the listing. And you said in your piece that you were going to do some investigating and to see if the event had been canceled or if it had just been moved. So uh, have you found out anything? You know, I haven't. Uh, Pierce County GOP hasn't gotten back to me, and neither have a couple of the people I've contacted who are a couple of the men's going on the men's retreat. But um, uh, And I'm not sure why they're not answering my calls they have in the past. Um, but I'll, I'll I'll keep on the story and I'll let you know if I hear anything different. Well, I'm sure if you hear, then you'll publish and then we'll all know. So that'll be awesome. Uh, well, Rich Smith, <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you so much as always, man. Yep. Thanks for having me. So a lot of us are wondering what we can be doing about the situation at the border. And so we are joined next by Stephen Wilhelm. Stephen is the team leader for the research team with Indivisible Washington's 8th District. And they are the team responsible for putting together the calls to action every week. Their work is just phenomenal. And so I thought it'd be great to share with listeners across the state the work that they do. So I have invited Stephen on to share some of it. And he is here with us. Hi, Stephen. Hey, good morning, Stefan. Thanks for the invitation. Of course, man. So, you know, um, as as uh, as we know, this is a very fluid situation right now as we record at uh, 10 a.m. on Wednesday. But I do want to talk about some of the bills that are uh, in Congress right now that are addressing the situation at the border. Um, as of our recording, there is the Keep Families Together Act in the Senate that was introduced by Dianne Feinstein. Um, and both of our Democratic senators have signed on to that. So let's talk about the situation in the House. Let's start with the Goodlot bill and the Ryan proposal. Now, according to news sources, neither is expected to pass for various reasons. But tell us a little bit about what each of those bills are and what they would do. Sure. Probably the the first thing to know is um, that the fundamentally the, 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 two, the big difference between the two bills is the Goodlatte bill does not provide a path to citizenship for uh, DREAMers, for DACA kids. Um, it, it was introduced a while ago. It's a very conservative bill. There's a lot of other things in it, but fundamentally, um, probably the big thing to know about uh, Goodlad is no path to citizenship for for dreamers. Um, the Ryan bill does address a path to citizenship or does give a path to citizenship. It's, it's long and convoluted, can take up to 20 years, mm. um, but it does provide that possibility. Um, because of all the things that are going on in the news right now, they are trying to emphasize that it, it does address 
uh, separating families at the border. Um, but in fact, it'll, you'll be surprised to hear that they're lying about uh, <laughs> uh, separating families in the border. What it actually um, allows is families to be incarcerated together in the border. What a, what a treat. Um, yeah. We were talking off air a couple minutes ago about the Flores uh, settlement, which essentially says children can only be kept in custody uh, for about 20 days in the least restrictive uh, environment possible. And so what this law would propose to do, theoretically, is allow families to be incarcerated together indefinitely, which is what the Republicans would like to do. Uh, just another note on that. Uh, so theoretically, um, there's uh, in the description of the what they're trying to do with this the border must not be separated from their um, parent or legal guardian, guardians while in DHS custody. But in fact, there's no language in the bill that prevents that. So um, it doesn't even solve the problem that it's purported to solve. Um, in a nutshell, um, I would say neither one of those bills is acceptable um, because they they are so draconian and they don't uh, solve the problem of separating families at the border or incarcerating children at the border. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So then what is your team calling for? What is the recommendation? Yeah, our team would recommend both for, um, for for any House member, Republican or Democratic, that people would call their uh, representative and tell them both of these bills are unacceptable. Um, they're incredibly conservative. They One doesn't even provide a path to citizenship. The one that provides a path to citizenship provides for indefinite incarceration of children, along with a lot of other um, restrictions that Republicans are trying to gain for legal immigration and for funding uh, the border wall and that kind of thing. So please, member of Congress, um, vote against both of these House bills when they come up for a vote this week. All right. So, you know, I just want to briefly discuss the uh, the Nadler bill. Um, there's a no. bill that was recently introduced by New York Congressman Gerald Nadler uh, that would prohibit the, the DHS from separating families at the border. Um, this also uh, is not expected to really go anywhere. But I'm, I'm wondering what you can tell us about the bill. You bet. Um, you may have heard about um, Senator Feinstein's bill, um, keep uh, Keep Families uh, Together Act. Yeah, that's in the they, Senate. Yeah, exactly right. So this is the House version of that bill. And because it's a little bit newer. So everybody knows Schoolhouse Rock. You need to pass the same bill in the House and the Senate. <laughs> yeah. um, so these are the, the two House and Senate versions of the same bill with a slight variation because the Nadler bill is a little bit newer. Um, it uh, addresses the family separation issue even a little bit more specifically. So without geeking out too much, fundamentally what the Nadler bill does that the Feinstein bill does not do is it prevents any prosecution of families that are seeking asylum. So, you know, that's kind of the, the Jeff Sessions doctrine, if you will, is if anybody um, you know tries to enter the country illegally, we're going to prosecute them for, for that federal misdemeanor. Even if they're asylum seekers. Even if they're asylum seekers, that's exactly correct. Um, and so what the added embellishment that the Nadler bill provides is, you know what, if somebody presents themselves for um, a request for asylum, you can't prosecute them at all. So it kind of eliminates the dynamic of do we or don't we incarcerate them? Do we or don't we um, separate the families when we do incarcerate them? 
Uh, and that bill, uh, in, in my opinion, very deftly puts the lie to uh, Trump's assertion that this is a problem that is being created by the Democrats because in both the situation with the Feinstein bill and then with this new Nadler bill, they're trying to address specifically that. And hey, they're Democrats. Um, you know, I, I want to, for listeners in Dave Reichert's district, uh, Congressional District 8, he gave a statement about this situation. And I want to read it in full because it's short. Um, quote, during my time in law enforcement, I saw children separated from their parents, and that image is something I will never forget. Uh, As we enforce laws and secure our border, we should protect and not punish children. Both are important to the security of our nation and communities. Um, This statement proposes no actions at all. So uh, what what response is your team recommending for people who live in Rikert's district? Yeah, boy, really weak sauce, as, as you were just saying. But fundamentally, um, as we were just talking, um, two, there would be two requests for action, as we were saying in the, in the first part. Number one, vote against the two bills that, are, that will be up for a vote this week. Um, and then number two, Dave, please co-sponsor uh, Mr. Nadler's bill. I, I don't have the number for it yet. Um, but we will get that within the next couple of days, and then we can we can provide that to people um, probably next week. But I'm sure if you just refer to it as the Keep Families Together Act, mm-hmm. uh, sponsored by Jerry Nadler, um, you know Dave Reichert's office is going to know exactly what you're talking about, and ask him to co-sponsor that bill, take an action. Um, and if I could, the, the one thing that I would sort of add for Mr. Reichert is um, that you know I know you're retiring. There's nothing that's causing you to not be able to speak out or to be afraid of not being reelected or anything like that. Um, certainly, Dino Rossi is going to be even less bold than you are. And so anything that you fail to do to solve this problem, my assumption is Dino Rossi will fail to do it in spades. In other words, you're not only taking you're not only showing me what you are doing, but you are fundamentally showing me what. Your supposed who you would like to see elected in, in, as your successor. I, I don't think he's going to do any different than you. So you're fundamentally a, a campaign advertisement for Dino Rossi. Your actions are a, a campaign advertisement for Dino Rossi. And I will just add for listeners who may not know, Dino Rossi is the Republican. He is the sole Republican running uh, to replace Reichert in the eighth. Okay, before I let you go, just a couple of other things that I know that you are calling on for action. Uh, one is net neutrality. Uh, so we'll stay on the House for this. Um, as, as we know, Washington here, uh, our state, is the only state in the nation with a net neutrality law. Uh, there is still a fight to preserve it federally in Congress. So what's the latest on that? Um, you bet. So what's going on there, as, as listeners may recall, is that the, the Senate did pass uh, what's called a Congressional Review Act resolution, which fundamentally says the Senate, uh, the intention of the Senate is that the repeal of net neutrality should be overturned and we should go back to the old, uh, the original uh, Obama era net neutrality rules. So that's been through the Senate. It needs to get through the House as well. The similar House bill is a, is a bill called uh, H.J. Res. 129. Okay. It's got out 168 signatures, and as listeners may recall, it takes 218 signatures to blast a petition out of committee and onto the House floor, and Dave Reichert has not signed that discharge petition. So the call for action on that, uh, on net neutrality this week, would be her uh, representative is Dave Reichert, um, or any of the other Republican uh, representatives who haven't um, signed that HGA Res 129, please sign that so that the House can vote on uh, net neutrality. 
Okay, terrific. And then one last thing. Let's let's talk about the Russia investigation. Um, Trump continues to threaten the the Mueller investigation, and so you were asking people to contact all of our members of Congress about this. So, what should they be demanding? Uh, you bet. So there are um, bills in both the House and the Senate that uh, representatives and senators can sign on to that are, would protect the special counsel um, in the event from, from uh, being uh, fired without without cause. Um, so, you know, I can provide those numbers to you if, if it's desired. But fundamentally, we would ask people to call both their their senators and their representatives and l- let them know that there's several things that are just unacceptable and um, that if Trump crosses any of those red lines, um, we would expect them to take action. And the best action they can take is by signing these bills. Firing Mueller would be crossing a red line, as would firing Rosenstein, as would trying to give information to your Republican um, allies without giving it to the duly uh, authorized gang of eight who's authorized to get that information. You may recall when Trump was trying to sell Spygate he got his good buddies, Trey Gowdy and, and Devin Nunes, to, to come in and, and uh, hear the information. And, oh, by the way, let me let my lawyer hear it as well. Um, and, and they finally said, gee, that really does look bad. And so they finally did bring in the gang of eight afterwards. But clearly, um, he's trying to work around to uh, get information to his allies any way he can and to um, you know adjudicate this in the court of public opinion. So, no, nope, that's not how it works in America. Um, we want to protect uh, due process, and so we want our representatives and senators to give Mueller and Rosenstein the, the protection they need. So call, call, call. So that is the call. Absolutely. That is the call to action. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for all of this, and uh, we'll check in again. My pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. So the Washington Democratic Convention was held last Friday and Saturday in Wenatchee and here to give us something of a post game and to tell us a little bit about what happens at these conventions generally is our friend Josh Troopen. Josh is a Democratic State Committee member from the 5th Legislative District. Hey, Josh. Hello. How are you? I'm doing fine. So I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of heavy lifting for us here. Uh, For those of us, and I kind of cast myself in this lot, who don't really know what happens at a state convention, maybe let's start with an overview. I mean, we know what happens at a national party convention. That gets good media coverage. And I don't want to get too wonky off the bat. But tell us what the purpose of a state party convention is. What happens at one? Sure. The state party convention is considered the highest authority of the Washington State Democratic Party. So every two years, we have a state convention. And at the state convention, we can adopt bylaws and charter changes. And we adopt a platform for the Washington State Democrats that goes from now through the middle of 2018, when 2020, I'm sorry, when the next state convention is held. Okay, so that's the big ticket item is the is the party platform. That's what everybody is there to uh, to vote on, to discuss. Talk a little bit, if you will, about why what happens at the convention is important to us rank and file Democrats like myself, especially, uh, you know, Democratic voters here in Washington. Sure. Uh the, the whole process starts with the caucus process, which occurred in March in each of the legislative districts. And at the caucus, we each legislative district uh, 
created its own platform and also chose delegates to the state convention. So if you wanted to be part of this, you just need to go to your legislative district and put yourself up as a delegate. And there, it, it's not like the 2016 caucuses where there were 50,000 people in one high school gymnasium. <laughs> there were you know, a few dozen people in the room, maybe. So what we do after we adopt the platform is that's what the ideal Democrat will follow. And, and you mean candidates, ultimately. The ideal Democratic candidate and then the ideal uh, actual office holder, we expect them to follow what's in the platform. It's really a guiding document, both in statement of principles and some fairly detailed um, planks within the platform. Okay. Well, I want to obviously unpack a lot of that in terms of how the platform is created and also how the planks are adopted and all of that stuff. But let's just talk about the delegates uh, briefly. So you, you mentioned that uh, you know you can go to your LD and get appointed a delegate, and delegates are the only ones who can vote. Anybody can attend the convention, but delegates are the only ones who can vote. So who are the delegates Aside from the people who are, are elected at LD caucuses, there are a number of other people who are also considered delegates too, like uh, elected officials and people like that, right? So, yes. Yeah, so the state committee members, uh, you have two from each legislative district and two from each county. And any statewide elected officials, so if uh, Governor Inslee decided to show up, he would uh, automatically be a delegate to the state convention. Uh, the whole field is, I believe, 500 delegates from across the state. And the vast majority of those are people who are actually elected in the caucus in March, as well as the chair of each district and the state committee members. Okay, got it. So, as we've said, the major agenda item is the party platform, and delegates vote on the party platform, uh, and there are planks, n a number of planks, everything from human rights and civil rights, uh, labor issues, tribal relations, and immigration, which I especially want to talk about. Um, so the platform is drafted before the convention starts. Tell us who writes this platform. How does that come together? Okay, so the platform all really starts... and. We can use the 2016 uh, party platform as kind of a baseline, sure. which is what we did in our LD. But each LD can create its own platform, which is can usually be limited to more local issues. So, for instance, if you're out in the 12th LD out in Chelan County, you may be more concerned about tariffs on agriculture whereas somebody in the 41st uh, around Bellevue may be more concerned with sound transit and transportation uh, across the bridges, for instance. Um, after each LD and county puts their platforms together, uh, there is a group that is the platform committee, and that consists of representatives from all different LDs, and they have, I think, three or four meetings around the state, out in Ellensburg, down in Tacoma, 
uh, where they get together and try to take all the local input and create a coherent, non-repetitive platform. That sounds like a big challenge. <laughs> it's a huge challenge, and this document is 140 pages, including all the resolutions at the end. Yes. Uh, but it, it's it's quite detailed, and a lot of it maps pretty well to individual laws or statutes that we would like to see either enforced or restored or created. So we bring all that stuff in, and on Friday of the convention, the Platforms Committee meets in person all day, uh, making sure everything is reconciled and everything is cleaned up. And then first thing Saturday morning, we get the platform in our inbox before we go into the general session with 500 people to discuss what's in it. Okay, and it's at that point then that changes are proposed at the convention, or does that happen ahead of time? How, how do the, the proposed changes, when and how do the proposed changes happen? So all the proposed changes in the platform must be in the platform before the they gavel the general session. The reason being that due to the rules of the convention, nothing can be added to the platform the only thing we can do is strike individual planks of the platform. So um, I had one plank struck or stricken uh, in the foreign policy because there was a plank that called for a good faith renegotiation of the Iran nuclear deal. Um, I looked through that. I saw that on Saturday morning and I decided that uh, it doesn't need to be renegotiated as a deal. We need to comply by it. And so I got up and I said, I'd like to um, consider this for striking. And then after we have a list of everything that people want to debate, we go back up and we explain why. And then we have a vote on each of the planks that was pulled out. So I pointed out, uh, this is using Republican framing in a way that's basically targeted at diminishing what President Obama had done with the Iran nuclear deal. So how many votes happen then over the course of that Saturday convention? Uh, so if there are 15 planks that are pulled for consideration, we would have one vote on each of them, uh, up or down, and then we would have a vote to pass all the ones that were voted up as a group. And then when we get that out of the way, and that's about three o'clock in the afternoon, we get that out of the way, then we have an official platform. Wow. Okay. Well, so what were some of the major shifts from 2016's party platform? Obviously, a lot has happened uh, since 2016. Not a lot of it good. Um, what were some of the shifts? I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that immigration came up. Well, there's... A lot of stuff in 2018 that many people did not even really dream was mm. going to be an issue just two years ago. Um, there are issues like immigration not being a matter of homeland security, detainees having the right of habeas corpus. In our immigration, the first plank was calling for the urgent comprehensive reform of United States immigration policy. And... 
We talk about more comprehensive DREAM Act for young adults, uh, extending the temporary residency to children of undocumented immigrants, uh, providing legal access for employers to an immigrant workforce, end to deportation without due process of law, and just a whole lot of things. Many of these planks just touched off by the excesses of the Trump administration. Sure, yeah, it's definitely, it sounds like it's definitely in response to that. Were there other things that, that came up uh, that were, say, in direct response? Like I know we, we touched on the, the human rights and civil rights plank as well. Was that uh, altered in some way? Well, we um, are calling for an opposition of things like the United States training of foreign military or police forces that engage in human rights suppression. So another major uh, issue that is coming back around, finally, fortunately, is the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, which mm. is leads off our human rights platform. That's the first uh, plank. We also want to ratify the Convention on Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And we want to enforce and monitor the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Students with Disabilities Act, the Rehabilitation Act. And these things are really under siege all the way from Trump and Pence down to Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education. Uh, it's just been a full on assault. And if we do not reaffirm that this is what Democrats stand for, then What's the point if we're not standing strongly for these things on the platform? So that's the platform. Um, let's talk about resolutions uh, as sort of adjunct to the platform itself. Uh, first, tell us what resolutions are and what they do. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but just go into a little bit more detail if you can. Sure. So at any point, any time during the year, Anyone can introduce a resolution to their local party organization, usually your legislative district. And a resolution has a specific form. So it has a bunch of whereas clauses that explain the problem, followed by a therefore be it resolved that uh, outlines a very specific action to be taken by the party. Well, let's talk about something that you put forth. Uh, so you put forth a, re a resolution regarding the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and their interference in primary elections. So uh, walk us through that and, and tell us what happened at the, at the convention with that. Sure. So in order to get this into the hands of the state convention, uh, we first had this passed in the 5th Legislative District last month. After it's passed there, uh, the chair signs it and forwards it to the state parties. So and just to be clear, this was a resolution urging the Washington State Democratic Party to admonish the DCCC for interference. Yes, uh, that's exactly what it was. So we agreed to this in the 5th Legislative District and the 45th, which is up north of us, and this becomes part of the package of resolutions that is considered at each state committee meeting or each state convention. Uh, this particular resolution lists the problems that we have seen with the DCCC, uh, where they support Democrats against other Democrats. Uh, they released negative research material on Democrats. And frankly, we have lost 63 seats since the 2009-2011 Congress. 
And that kind of shows that these methods that they're using are not working well. So this resolution basically resolves that the Washington State Democrats call upon the DCCC and also their Senate side, the DSCC, right. uh, to remain non-aligned during contested Democratic primaries between viable progressive candidates. And we request that they focus their activities to activities that will benefit whichever Democrat is the eventual primary winner, such as advertising against our friend Dino Rossi. And this actually was approved at the convention. Was it controversial right. at all? How was the vote on it? Well, I uh, passed this around to other people who work across the state, and it got so much backing, both from indivisible groups and people within the party, that some people actually printed up buttons, hey. uh, said, my district, my choice. Uh, and I probably had 100 people wearing the buttons sitting there and the convention waiting for this to be called up. There is a list of resolutions that the platforms committee says these are we recommend that you pass these as a group. The DCCC resolution was pulled out for further discussion um, because there one person wanted to make modifications to it, which is not in order when you're considering a resolution at that point. You can only delete words or kill sentences. You can't add words to it. And so after that, we had a vote on this resolution itself, and I would say that it was 75-80% at least in the room in favor of it. It was fairly overwhelming. So this is the official position of the Washington State Democratic Party now. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. Uh, good work there. Um, so the platform is now finalized after the convention. And I think a lot of people are sort of wondering, well, OK, what does this document really mean in its finished form for 2018? We talked about it a little bit earlier, but I think you want to take things a little bit further as part of the Progressive Caucus. Uh, you're exploring ways to score state and federal representatives based on how closely they follow the Democratic Party platform, which would actually give it some teeth. So talk about how that process would work. So we, we are still working on this. This is something that we looked at the platform after it passed on Saturday, and we said, okay, now we have this really good platform that people can actually go to the Washington Democrat site and look at it. I think that any progressive will be really happy with what's in the platform. But from time to time, there are members of Congress or members of the state legislature who don't really exactly follow what's in the platform. So we are thinking of ways to choose perhaps 10 or 20 issues that would be associated with specific votes. And we're looking at a number of different ways to do this right now. And perhaps at the end of the year, we could have some sort of a, you know, the the most democratic representative of all. So it'd be a scorecard system, basically. Scorecard system with actual uh, publicity for the uh, representatives of the people who um, do the best uh, based on the Democratic 
party principles that we have outlined here. Well, that is all tremendous, and I would love for you to keep us posted on that. And thank you for doing a lot of the explaining and heavy lifting to kind of catch us all up to speed as to what happened at the Democratic Convention. And uh, thanks, Josh. We'll, We'll talk to you next time, man. Anytime. Thank you so much. And finally, this week, we are joined by Jen Carter, who attended the convention as a delegate. She is a PCO for the 5th Legislative District, and she is a member of Indivisible Washington's 8th District. Hello, Jen. Hi, Stefan. So you were elected to be a delegate uh, from the 5th at a caucus. Talk about that process, and then tell us why you decided to throw your hat in the ring. Yeah, sure. So there are a couple of ways to become a delegate. You could be part of the official committee, a state committee men like Josh, who we just talked to, or you could be part of one of the official committees like the platform committee or the credentialing committee. Mm. Um, Or you can join as a delegate um, and be elected just as a regular person like me. So I went to my local caucus and I'd only been a member of the LD for a handful of months But I attended this caucus. They said, do you want to run to be a delegate? And I said, absolutely. Why wouldn't I want the chance to, like, you know, increase my participation? That's what's so great about this whole process. You know, I have a full-time job. I'm I'm a mom. I have a dog. This is this is like a a, a part-time hobby for me, something I'm very passionate about. But I'm not a professional politician. Um, But the fact that I was able to just, you know, put up my hand and say, yeah, I want to be more involved. Um, and that I had that opportunity to go to Wenatchee and participate um, with, you know, my my fellow uh, citizens was just really fantastic. Did you meet other people there who had kind of your same story, full-time job, parents, and just decided to jump in? For sure. I mean, we're seeing that all over the country right now. Every time you turn around, someone is saying, this is my first time getting involved politically. That was, you know, kind of my start with Indivisible. And then I wanted to get more involved with the local Democratic Party. And I thought, well, you know, there's my hook. I'm a a very progressive activist with my Indivisible um, sisters and brothers, but I wanted to get to know more about the party. And when I ran for delegate, that's what I said. I said, I'm a progressive. I'm, I represent Indivisible, but I also represent the 5th Legislative District. So I want to go to Wenatchee, and I want to make sure that progressive values are represented. And then I want to make sure that all of these new rookie activists are also represented um, among all of these you know, scary machine Democrats that you <laughs> keep on hearing about, right? <laughs> That's not a thing so much, you know. I, so you didn't run into any any scary machine Democrats? Even the ones that you might call scary machine Democrats, we all have a common purpose right now. Yeah. We can put aside what happened in 2016. We have to. We really have to put that aside and unite. Yeah. Did you feel a sense of coming together because, you know, there are progressives and there are more mainstream Democrats? And obviously what you're referring to, we saw that split, you know, become really toxic uh, during the 2016 election. Did you get a sense at the convention that people are setting aside their differences? Yes. I think that they are putting those differences on pause. People wanted to even know. I was asked by someone, did you vote for Bernie? Before he really wanted to open up, because that was almost like secret code, um, because we are strangers, um, just and we began to realize, oh, we're a little bit simpatico. Who'd you vote for in the primary? And so I know that when the rubber hits the road, we are going to be one unified party. Yeah. But a lot of damage was done. There's a lot of uh, licking of wounds that's going to take place. 
it'll take place after November. Yeah. Well, ideally, it'll take place uh, primarily between the primaries and November, so we can all <laughs> get on the same page. So, you know, mm-hmm. th- as we were just talking with Josh about, there, it, it's a it's a really complex process that a lot of people don't really know about, you know, in terms of what happens at the convention. Um, there's a lot to learn. The rules are not straightforward. Did you have to do a lot of homework before you went out? <laughs> Well, luckily, I had a background in parliamentary procedure from college. What? That's so, amazing. Yeah, no, right? oh, so you were ready to go. All of that silly gavel banging didn't intimidate me at all. <laughs> but there, there were the actual processes of, you know, if you want to edit a plank in the platform, how do you do that? Let me tell you the good news is that it happens locally. We were talking about, you know, what the fifth would bring and say, you know, do we want to set up our own platform and bring that to the state or bring that to the county? And, you know, these were just regular folks meeting at a high school at night that were writing this stuff and everybody was invited to be involved. So what we ended up doing was adopting a previous platform as a local organization and then going to the state. But we had representation at the big statewide platform committee there in Wenatchee. So if if the platform was something that you were passionate about, you didn't need special qualification or a special election. All you had to do was raise your hand and say, I want to be involved here. Amazing. So high schools is where this is taking place, not in, in the so-called smoke-filled back rooms. No, not at all. They're taking place at a coffee shop in Black Diamond, or they're taking place at, you know, a, a free community space or the library or Starbucks, you know, wherever we want to get together and have a meeting. It's there's there's no secret password to getting involved here. Just show up. You know, you live in the 8th District, and I understand that the congressional race in the 8th was a very hot topic at this convention. Give us an idea of what people were saying about the Mm -hmm. race in the 8th. Sure. Um, The 8th was one of the hottest topics there, even among people that don't live in the 8th. The 8th is enormous. It is the only district to span the Cascades. You have your, you know, tech folks over here on, on the side where I live, and then you go over the Cascades and you have more rural um, folks with, with different interests and different priorities over on the other side of the Cascades, like in Wenatchee, where the convention was held. Right. Everyone wanted to know, you know, who are these three front runners and how do we feel about them? And, and golly, what's going to happen in August? August 7th is the primary. So here's what I think everyone agreed. People had their favorites, but everyone agreed that we had three very compelling candidates. And one of those three is going to beat Dino, without a doubt. Absolutely. Right on the same page there with you. So, you know, I'll just ask you before we go, um, you were super fired up. It seems like you had a great experience at the convention. Is this something that you will be doing again? Oh, I am so sad that I have to wait two years until the next one. <laughs> All right. I think you answered my question. All right, Jen Carter. Well, uh, you know, well, as they say, we'll see you around campus. But thank you so much for going and representing the 5th District. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this week's show. See, told you it was going to be a big show. Looking ahead to next week, we will have more coverage of the situation at the border, specifically what we can be doing about it, because as is becoming clear, the situation is far from resolved. So watch this space. If you have questions or suggestions for content on that or anything else, hit me up at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. My thanks again to Minda Thorward, Rich Smith, Stephen 
Wilhelm, Josh Truppen, and Jen Carter. Five guests. Wow, I believe that's a record. And my special thanks to Erin Albanese for her help. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.